This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey, and welcome back to the Young Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Kenzie Aaron of Aaron Iron and Steel. Let's get right into it. So this is the podcast for young makers, by young makers, about young makers, for everybody. All right, we got back on track there. So this is the Young Makers Podcast on the Makery Network. We're coming to you, not live, but we're coming to you. And thank goodness I don't have to talk by myself because apparently I can't talk this morning. So without too much rambling, I'd like to introduce you guys to my awesome guest today. Oh, I forgot to ask your name. All right, so you can introduce yourself then. Welcome, my awesome guest. <laughs> hey, I am uh, Adam. Last name uh, uh, is Dutch, so no need to bother. Uh, yeah, so I'm Adam. I am 17. I've been blacksmithing for three years now. Yeah, three years. Uh, I've been uh, spending most of my time uh, of those three years in my own backyard. Uh, and for the last year... Uh, I have been working at Smederij Zwolle. So. That is wow, a blacksmithing awesome. shop. Oh. Yeah, th- oh, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> uh, oh, no. You, you. Yeah, okay. Uh, Smederij Zwolle. It's uh, blacksmithing Zwolle, basically. It's just the main blacksmithing company uh, in are uh, in the city Zwolle. Okay. And so I know we're talking a little bit about uh, your backstory before we got into the episode, but for the listeners, um, can you tell us, you know, how you first got into blacksmithing and then how you came to be working where you are now? And yeah, take us through the backstory. Uh, well, yeah, where I began, well, as a small kid, I was always interested in uh, building things and being active with my hands because I wasn't very good at uh, working with books. Um, so in primary school, I would always be building with blocks and wanting to do more, uh, but I wasn't allowed to. Um, but when I was uh, around 10, uh, my mother passed away. And then my brother became interested in uh, pouring metal to cast knives for uh, uh, to sell to make money uh, for the Abduzes. The Abduzes is uh, it's basically it's a big mountain climbing uh, on bikes. It's a big old happening uh, in France. Uh, and it's all to raise awareness and money for cancer research. Um, so he started working with uh, hot metal uh, then, but he only went for aluminum casting. But that really got me interested in the rest. And so I started watching a whole bunch of videos like uh, Man at Arms and Alex Steele. Um, so then when I was around 12 or something, I... Uh, I got my first blacksmithing class uh, as a birthday gift. Um, 
yeah and since then in about a year i've built my own oven bought my first anvil slowly started gathering tools and knowledge and uh yeah just started practicing and now uh, about a year ago uh, i started working at smederijs wolle uh, uh, because my woodworking teacher really noticed that I was more into metal than in construction in wood. Uh, so him and a couple of his buddies started messaging different blacksmithing uh, shops. And Smederijs Wolles said, yeah sure, we'll take him. And uh, now, I'm uh, now I'm running production access and once a month I get a week to work for myself. And uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. where we are now. That's really cool, actually, to get to, you know, work in a shop. I've seen your Instagram page, and it seems like there's some awesome machinery in that shop. And I'm sure you, you know, learn a lot more working production axes around people who know what they're doing than a lot of other young makers out there who are sort of fumbling through it on their own. So how is that? Did you find that in the last year you've learned a lot more than you did in the two years before that? Yeah, I've really been noticing um, that even though I work with about the same quality of tooling, uh, sometimes like uh, when I work on a small project for myself or for some friends, uh, I just grab a hand hammer, anvil, and one of our coax forges, and then I still really notice how much better I've become um, in that one maybe half a year that I've actually been taught uh, hand forging uh, than the amount that I had grown in the first two years um, so yeah uh, only the knowledge that just gets thrown at me already improves my hammer technique uh, but one thing that I really like is that every Friday um, one of our three owners, Kees Klaassen, very good blacksmith, um, he picks one thing and we focus the entire day on making that one thing. Uh, two weeks ago, or three or something, we uh, focused all day on making Kopesh. Uh, the Kopesh knives, very tiny versions, uh, because it has some interesting hooks and angles. Uh, and the week after that, we focused a day on making tongs. Um, we also spent a day on making uh, a very specific type of Swedish hammer, which has really nice balance. Uh, and with all of those little things that uh, Case puts us on, we really all start growing a whole lot. Well, so that's a really interesting way of yeah helping it's almost a team building activity and it helps to grow those skills that's a great idea so are you the own are are you like an intern or is this a job uh no uh, it is a semi internship because i uh just recently this school year i started a baby l um uh, for the Dutch people listening, uh, they already know what a BBL is, but what BBL means is I go to school one day and then I work uh, at my uh, learning company for three to four days. Uh, and that's where 
and so I learn uh, what I want to do in the setting that I want to work in later. Oh, so it's like a we have it's called a RAP. So it's a registered apprenticeship program. Yes. So it's almost like that. You're getting school exactly credit that. for working in some type of trade. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I wa- I looked into that program, but they don't obviously. Well, I guess it's not obvious, but we don't have any, you know, um, blacksmiths that you can get registered here. So, like for our program, they have to they have to have a journeyman certificate, and there's I don't think there's anywhere that offers like a blacksmithing journeyman, you know. So you can't uh, you'd have to take like welding or cabinet or you know cabinetry or something where you can get registered. So that's why I ended up you know just doing school. So, how does it work yeah, there? Is there um, some type of organization that gives... Go ahead. Uh, yeah, uh, we need to... Uh, well, the companies uh, need to get a... Uh, God, what's it called again? Uh, Leerbedrijf. Uh, it's a learning company uh, certificate. It's so that uh, the government and the schools basically know that, ah, yes, this is a place that has been recognized to learning people uh, or teaching people uh, so yeah we do all uh, we do have to get registered but almost every company can get registered because I also had an internship at a uh, casket company for a year uh, I've had classmates who just they had an internship at the supermarket and yeah you can get it fairly easily okay so it's almost more like we also have uh, workplace experience so the rap the registered apprenticeship is for trades and then the workplace experience is just anywhere you know yeah the grocery store or anywhere else so that's really cool that you get to do that are you the only student there um no I have uh, one other co-worker Dario uh, I don't know his full name. He's half Spanish, so that's a it's a long name. But he's a very cool dude. Um, a very nice, talented blacksmith. Um, and yeah, he also goes to school. Uh, different education, I think, and a couple years higher than me. Okay. Um, and but it must be cool to have also- people around you who do the same thing. Oh yeah, it's really amazing. Uh, I have a couple of co-workers and three bosses or three owners. Um, And we all are kind of focused on different sections but under the same umbrella. Uh, uh, Let's see, uh, Guy, uh, very cool dude, uh, like everyone there. but he is really talented at making like very uh, very high focused uh, or very high grain uh, Damascus patterns and he just goes all out in making the fanciest stuff Um, uh, Pim, one of our owners uh, is also uh, very much of the Damascus knives and recently has been doing a lot more Frankenstein Damascus uh, a whole bunch of offcuts uh, in a canister weld, and they turn out really nice. But they turn out different, and that would make and that's what makes them cool. Um, 
Ja, Dario en Kees. Uh, Dario is really interested. Or isn't interested, but he gets put on access uh, a whole lot. Um, and Kees. Uh, yeah, Kees does everything. He has an uh, education in uh, silverwork. Um, but he can do basically anything. He also runs uh, a very specific type of axes. Um, we in the Netherlands call them uh, kantbeilen. Uh, it's basically an axe, but the sharp part, the the blade, is off center by a very specific degree, uh, so that you can actually put the eye. Uh, or the side of the eye of the axe on the metal and uh, now on the wood and the whole blade will have full contact uh, so you can really work close for wood carving and that kind of things oh oh yeah so it's like a it's a small axe so it's one hand like a carving axe yeah with uh, with a very specific angle on it so you can really get okay. into those tight corners it's really interesting. So do you need like a right-handed or a left-handed one of those? Uh, yeah, there are different ones. Uh, there know, is like... indeed a difference between the left-handed and the right-handed ones. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Different... So where do you fit in, in here? Uh, I fit in uh, almost every category. Um, in my free time, I really like to experiment with Damascus, but in my not free time, so that's two days a week, uh, I get put on uh, X production. So then I also have to focus on making a very specific type of X. Um, and on the Fridays, we get the team building exercise from Case in doing art stuff. Man, that seems like a really awesome place to work. It sure sounds like a lot more fun than school. And I have a feeling that all the young and the old, well not old, all the all the makers listening to you are probably wishing that that's what they were doing in high school. So it sounds like you're in this really unique position and it sounds like you're in a really awesome place to be doing the work that you want to do. So are you working there because because it's the big, you know, because it's the blacksmith shop or are you into axes as well? Um, both. Uh, the axis is just really a very uh, complicated uh, shape because we try to uh, have as hard uh, of a shape of axe to forge, which kind of sounds counterintuitive, um, but it does make it so that we can't get copied so that we always have our same familiar customers and more uh, because they can't go to any place else uh, and indeed I am working there because it's a back, uh, blacksmith place but because the axes are so interesting it also pushes me very much to uh, becoming a better blacksmith yeah I'm sure now I've been meaning to make a hatchet. Now that I have my little giant power hammer, I've been, I've been thinking about doing a wrapped eye hatchet, which is probably you know it's probably something you find pretty easy. So how many axes are you guys doing a week? 
on a, on an average week? Um, an average week that would be three of us doing mass production or four. Uh, lately, uh, we've been having a jig that Pim built, which punches the ice for us, which really speeds up the process. Um, but I'm not really in charge of keeping count. But if I were to make a guess, it's about four to six axes a day, um, and that the entire month. And, yeah, that's uh, pretty good. And I think we have about like, uh, more like three weeks because we also have a week of just stamping, hardening uh, all of the axes. So it would be six axes a day, three weeks in a row. Crazy. That is that's some pretty good production. And how many models of ax? Like, do you guys, you guys be working on different types of axes all at the same time, or do you do like one different? you know one one uh, profile a week or something like that um, our main sale is the very specific same style of X um, but sometimes we do get a large order uh, of different types of axes um, like uh, I think it was about I uh, don't remember when but uh, a while ago we just spent a day or so or two um, indeed making fold, uh, folded eye axes but on a very tiny scale uh, they were ultra lights and I would guess them around 200 grams 500 grams like very light yeah interesting because I talk a lot about uh, production work and productivity and trying to streamline the process and to make more you know, I do knives, so I talk mostly about knives, but I honestly know nothing about it, you know? And so it's, I think it's good to have somebody on here who actually works in a production setting. Um, I wonder if you could shed a little bit of light on some of the things that you guys do around the shop to speed up production and streamline the process. Um... Well, one of the things that we do is we put different people on different parts of the axis. Um, so uh, we have like two people or one person uh, forging the preform of about like 20 to 30 axes a day. Um, well, that's a tiny bit higher, like 15 to 20 preforms a day. And uh, we have one person who uh, forges the whole X, uh, that's Dario, and sometimes me, but I'm still learning how to make the perfect X. Uh, so it's mostly Dario. Um, so when me and my co-workers have uh, punched the axes and done the rough preform, we hand them over to Dario, and Dario makes the uh, finished rough, uh, rough forging, and then we have someone else who does the grinding and Dario does all of the stamping and the hardening and the final grinding. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how we work production. We just uh, put different people in different parts so they can get focused on that one specific section. Awesome. Yeah, that does seem, so it's sort of a production line sort of thing. Yeah, you hand off 
onto the next step. You're not taking one axe from the beginning to the end yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably a lot more efficient. And so do you enjoy that, or is it... Or would you prefer to do it all yourself? Um... Kind of all three. <laughs> um... I do enjoy that I uh, just get one very focused part to do all day long so that I don't constantly have to switch between my tooling um, because I have to switch the different steps. Um, uh, but it sometimes does get tiring of like, ah, yay, I have to do this one specific action again and again. Um, but sometimes it's also really chill because you're used to that one specific progress and if I were to have to switch to uh, constantly making the entire X uh, like I said uh, that would be just so much uh, switching between hammer technique and uh, tooling that it would just be unmanageable yeah no it sounds like a really awesome job like I, I'm sorry if I'm starting to get into the boring questions now but I'm completely fascinated by this you know, this sounds like, you know, every every young blacksmith's dream is to sort of work in a shop like that. I mean, I've seen some of the equipment in that shop just through your Damascus pictures on Instagram. And, I mean, I was so excited about my 25-pound little giant. But, I mean, you look like you guys have some power hammers that could eat my little giant. Um, well, because and of... I don't uh, really have a... Oh. <laughs> No, go ahead. Oh, I was I don't really have a question about it. I'm just jealous of your power hammers, honestly. Okay. Um well, you shouldn't be. Um they all look very powerful and they have enough power, but we would like to have some with more power, but we can't uh because neighbors uh we are already really pushing the limit of the tooling uh of the power hammers that we have. Uh, they are like just below the weight uh, class that we're allowed to have uh, thanks to neighboring companies and actual neighbors outside of the uh, terrain. Okay. So what type of power hammers are you guys running there? Or what, you know, what rough sizes you got? Um, I, don't know, uh, I don't know the sizes and the weight classes. Um, but we run a old uh, WMW. It's, uh, don't remember the origin, but it's a spring power hammer, um, which means it has a motor that uh, runs, and when you press on the pedal, it pushes uh, the band, uh, the rubber belt, onto a different section of the wheel, which activates oh, yeah. something and then makes a big spring, just go up and down and that just slings the uh, ram up and down then we have a uh, Baco uh, also don't remember which country that one is from I think one of them is from Germany um, but that one works the same but is a bit more uh, tunable you can really like put in how high you want uh, the dice to go and how hard you want them to hit um, but the same mechanism. Uh, then we have uh, Mr. Peskins. And Mr. Peskins is basically the stereotype uh, big uh, massive power hammer that everyone uses. Like 
uh, Eliav uh, from that works uh, uses that con oh, so uh, that construction of power hammer. It's an air the, hammer. Yeah, it's an air hammer. Uh, air hammer yeah, sounds different nice. to me because our fourth power hammer uh, is one that works on pressurized air. It's an uh, old German World War II machine, I think, and it's only hooked up to uh, pressurized air. And uh, it goes real fast. <laughs> hmm. The uh, the hammering speed or the ram speed on that thing it's insane, but it doesn't have uh, a whole lot of power uh, because it's only pressurized air. Yeah. Yeah, my little giant is a is a, a trip hammer too, so it's like a spring hammer. Yeah. And I love it. I like that it's mechanical because. If I had an air hammer and it broke, I don't think I'd be able to fix it, honestly. But this thing, you know, you can kind of see how the whole thing works. And Little Giant is still in operation, so you can order parts for it, which I really like. Um, I mean to make some, or make or buy some new dies for it eventually. They're nice, but they're just flat dies, so I'm looking at some, some mm. round dies. So... Oh, I've went, you know, I've went way off how this podcast usually goes. You're... <laughs> Your internship slash job is just so interesting that I've we've talked about it the whole time. So let's you know let's get into you. What have you been doing uh, the past week? Oh, the past week. Um, well, uh, the past week I've been forging out a uh, wakizashi, uh, the smaller type of katana, um, and doing a whole bunch of grinding on it because. Uh, I wanted to make a challenge for myself and instead of going with a standard challenge of oh yeah make a very interesting pattern of Damascus uh, I said fuck it and uh, I grabbed eight different types of metal and I just tried to forge weld them together um, and it worked uh, and then I used the hot cut and folding technique to restack it and uh, bump my la uh, layer count up. And so I am done with that. I have forged out the entire profile, forged the bevels, ground it all. Uh, it's almost done. All I have to do is sharpen it. But I'm still doubting if I'm going to do that because legal reasons. Um, but the yeah, that's what I've been doing last week. And after the vacation, and when I get to work for myself again, I am going to start engraving the Tsuba. Um, and that is going to be a big challenge, because uh, I want to do all of it by hand. No air engravers, I'll just hammer and uh, chisel. Ooh, hammer and chisel engraving is something I've been meaning to get it. Oh, I have so many things that I want to try, I've, and I mention them all the time on the show, and I never do them, because I'm busy making knives, <laughs> but hammer and chisel, I made some gravers once, I made a, a V graver and like a flat one, just, I, sort, I just copied the first two Alex Steele made in his Viking sort of video, because those seem to do the trick, <laughs> and you know, they actually, they worked, I, could, I carved some lines, or I cut some lines in copper, and it was pretty cool, but I couldn't keep up with it. So, do you have access, like, you know, is there access to engraving tools there, or how is, you know, how are you getting into this? 
Um, well, uh, both Bim and Case. Well, Bim had a goldsmithing uh, or goldwork education, and Case had a silverworking education, silversmith. Um, so we do have the tooling for it, but I am more of a person uh, of I want to make this thing and I want to make it with things that I made myself. Uh, so I grabbed a big industrial bearing, I pulled it out into a long bar, uh, chopped that up, uh, chopped that up into a whole bunch of tiny sections, and uh, forged those down into my own chisel set. Wow, that's awesome. That's super cool. So are you, do they have like uh, sharpening jigs and stuff or that's all freehand too? Because all the research I've done has said that's kind of the hardest and most crucial part. Um, yeah, we do have uh, a sharpening jig, but that's more of a low turning wheel. Uh, so you can really get the profile in without ruining your temper. But most of the chisel sharpening that we do while engraving is just on a leather strap or on a very fine grit uh, whetstone or oil stone or I don't know what case has. Cool. Uh, so have you ever done this before or this is your first first try? Um, I've spent some time on learning how to engrave like the regular lines and the... Uh, uh, kind of the French uh, engraving, I think it is the the flowy lines, the pretty. Uh, but with this project, I really want to go into the deep engraving, the more Japanese style of real deep layers, and really add uh, mm. add all of the depth that I can. Uh, kind of like Ilya does. Yeah. Oh my! Il Ilya's engraving and his work is some of my favorite work ever. Is, or have you seen the the wrought iron hammer he did and then he did all the engraving and inlay on the mm. sides ooh yeah I saw it and I was so jealous that's it, it oh, was man. insane oh. I, I love engraving Where I've so for Christmas this year I asked for books and art supplies because it you know I was thinking about doing some type of art education and a lot of times you need a portfolio to get into those type of things even if I just wanted to take like uh, yeah goldsmithing or anything like that you still need a portfolio to get into a lot of those schools so you need to be able to draw and whatever so anyways I asked for art supplies and books and I asked for you know any like leatherworking woodworking or jewelry books sort of idea and whatever type of book I get is probably the next uh, craft that I'm gonna try out so if I do get the engraving book I asked for I think that's the next one on the list but uh, I'm really excited to see how your engraving turns out and uh, and this whole Wakazashi project seems really interesting oh you mentioned that you took seven types of metal and uh, forge welded them together is that seven types of steel or you're doing like a like a copper and nickel uh. kind of stack no, uh, eight actually, not seven, and all steel. Um, it was, uh, let's see, it was C45, which if I remember correctly is just 1045, uh, but like different country, different names. Um, uh, C37, which is just construction steel, uh, but it's, it's the standard which we use for uh, cheap Damascus. 
uh, then two uh, tiny plates of uh, 15 and 20 and 01 then a uh, then a couple of layers of leaf spring and three different types of uh, saw uh, saw blade so one circular saw and two different types of band saw uh, because one kind uh, because metal uh, band saws uh, have a high carbon content and woodworking band saws have high nickel content I think don't quote me on this yeah it should be something like that and so how many times did you fold that um, let's see the first fold failed because I was dumb and put uh, leaf spring on the outside and leaf spring doesn't weld to itself at all um, oh yeah so then I had two yeah. blocks and I stretched one out chopped that into four and put layers of C45 or uh, 1045 in between uh, then I welded that uh, hot cut it twice yeah twice um, then I drew out the other half of the billet um, I chopped that up then when I drew the primary billet out and hot cut it uh, I put one of the uh, blocks from the other billet uh, in the center welded that drew it out and repeated that one more time and then I was done hmm so I wonder because you used some like mild steel and some uh, 1045 if those folds will be enough to get uh, carbon diffusion so did you did you end up hardening it yes I uh, I hardened it in oil I'm planning on posting that video somewhere soon uh, in regular motor oil because that's the only high enough tube that we have but everything stood uh, kept straight and everything kept true and if I did all of my uh, layer uh, alignment go uh, correctly the center line of where the edge is uh, would be uh, 01 and 15 and 20 oh awesome yeah, that sounds like an awesome project. I hope you post that uh, finished up on uh, on Instagram because that's going to come out really awesome. But yeah, have you ever seen people who will take like W1 or something really high carbon and fold it together with wrought iron enough times that the carbon will actually diffuse into the wrought iron and the whole thing will be a piece of high carbon steel that's all hardenable? Uh, I haven't seen that specifically, but I have seen Case try to... Um pour uh, powdered steel over uh, or onto rod iron to try and get the uh, powder steel to pull into the grain structure uh, of the rod iron to make it hardenable okay that That's failed cool. just to be clear that failed <laughs> but it was a cool project Yeah. No, it's carbon diffusion is a pretty crazy thing. And it's also the same reason why uh, you have a layer of decarb on the outside of Damascus. I love steel. Steel is the coolest thing. Like the way that the carbon and everything works together in steel is just my favorite. And yeah, carbon diffusion is wild and carbon migration and all that across 
you know your weld lines even if you just like folded up a piece of rebar you'd still have a pattern in there because of because of where the weld lines are and the way that the carbon works there it's super it's super cool so I want to get into more forge welding uh, this past week I worked well actually today I'm going to go and weld the back door onto my forge and some brackets for sliding bricks on the front door and um, you know get that I think my forge is coming up to forge welding heat but I want to hopefully keep that in a little bit better and I want to get some Damascus soon I have a piece of something that I'm hoping is wrought iron but is at least iron um, it, I just found it like at the well, it's called the ReStore it's like a second hand store and it was in the tool section it was just this bar of steel that said one dollar on it and it sort of had some lines on it so I'm like oh maybe it's wrought iron but I didn't think so and when I spark tested it it doesn't it only lets off a couple uh, really short sparks and so I'm really hoping that it's gonna etch cool when I when I toss it on the sides of a knife I've got some I've got some cool forge welding projects nothing quite as extensive as yours but it sounds like you got some cool stuff going on over there so you work in this big shop or well you yeah you work there too and you do your work there man the work is said I said work a lot I'm confusing <laughs> myself but um so do you have your own personal workshop at home or all your work is done at work <laughs> uh yeah I have my uh, oh, own like... little shop uh where I work um uh it's uh, nothing special just uh just a drill uh two anvils a self-built uh charcoal oven which actually works on a hair dryer um <laughs> uh, uh 1x30 uh belt sander with a uh drum sander i think they're called the flat discs um on the side oh, yeah, disc sander yeah disc sander those things um oh, nothing too fancy um yeah, what I would say is the fanciest tool in my own uh, workplace is my second anvil. It's a it's a 120 kilo anvil uh, with two hardy holes. Oh. It's a it's a it was worth the money. Yeah, and as I've heard, anvils are a lot easier to come by in Europe. Just because it's so much older, you know, Europe as a whole. I mean, blacksmithing happened there for, well, I don't know, like 3,000 years. Who knows? You know, a very long time. But blacksmithing happened here for maybe 200 years before, you know, it sort of got out of out of style. So you don't, you don't find a lot of anvils out here like you do there. Or maybe I, I don't live in Europe, so I can't really tell you. But do uh. you, do you see them kind of? often um well i do spot some random anvils here and there like oh hey that metalworking class uh, at this specific university has like three anvils scattered around um but uh, i assume they're easier to find uh on marketplace uh than in uh, America, but a lot of the anvils that you find around here are also very high quality trash. Um, like, 
just very tiny, which people ask way too much for, or way too broken to be used, which people still ask full price for. Um, but some anvils, which are just absolute beauties, are also used as decoration. Um, where my grandparents live, there's a, I think it's a car company. Uh, and every time uh, we drive to there, ever since I was little, uh, there was just this big anvil uh, outside of the door on a big wood stump. Um, but the wood stump was on its side and the anvil wasn't mounted in any way. So it was obviously just there for show. And when I really got into blacksmithing, I always, every single time that we drove past that anvil, I was like, damn, I wish I had that. Even though it was just standing outside, resting away, doing nothing. Have you ever asked them about it? No, I, uh, I was planning on doing that, but then I already had my anvils and uh, my workplace doesn't need any more anvils. So I just never really uh, asked about it, but yeah. I, I do still kind of want to go there one day and be like, hey, what's up with the anvil? And hopefully get it and uh, maybe, yeah. has it, uh, maybe have it as a memento or actually start using it. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like it's uh, something pretty nice. You ever got out of the car and, like, you know, gotten up close and looked at it? Like a crazy person walking through the bushes outside the car <laughs> company? <laughs> no, I I, uh, I haven't gotten out of the car and looked up close, but from the quick little moments that we drove by, um, it's kind of the same anvil that I have now, but it looks a lot bigger. I would guess it 200, 220 kilos or something. And uh, oh, probably instead of two hardy holes, it has a Pritston hole and all of those fancy uh, mech thingies. Yeah. Well, you know what I can say for certain? Like, I, n I went out on a limb saying it's easier to find anvils there, but it is more common to find double horn anvils. We Those are really rare here. Like, in all the... All the uh, you know, like uh, classified ads, Kijiji is what we have in Canada. All the classified ads, I guess it's like Craigslist in America. Um, I've never seen a double horn anvil for sale. You get you get a lot of London pattern, but never double horn. Mm. And I talked to a guy who restores them once, and he said he has some that he's turning into double horn anvils. But you know, you can't you can't find them around here. That German style. I guess it's not just German, but it's. You know, I like the German style ones the best, I guess I should say. Uh, yeah, what I would uh, recommend for anyone who wants a double horn. Um, and also just a really handy thing to have is just uh, a big stake anvil. It's, uh, it's what I started on. Uh, it was a double horn, uh, but a big one uh, on a solid stand. And it has double horn. So that's... Uh, it's a useful thing yeah. that I keep around. Yeah, my dream anvil is probably like a 200. I guess it doesn't even have to be a full 200, but you know, 150, 200 pound um, 
double horn, you know, pristine forged anvil. Like I see them on uh, vintage tools for sale on Instagram, and I I can't even pretend to afford it. But man, I want one of those. And your anvil, your anvil, like makes me drool. I've looked at your page a couple times in preparation for this interview, and I I'll sit there and drool at that post of your anvil for a couple minutes every time. Yeah. Um. The very interesting story. The man that I uh, bought it from uh, is uh, somewhere, uh, some man living on a big estate uh, with a whole bunch of just cellars. Well, not cellars, uh, big garages. Uh, and he rents them out. And he was renting one out to a metal worker for a couple of years or so. Um, but the man stopped paying his rent, so he went up to the man and was like, Hey, yo, you need to get your shit out of my uh, storage unit. And, I was, and the metal worker, he just said, Fuck it, keep it. Um, so then he had a whole bunch of metalworking stuff, and he just saw this anvil, and, was, uh, and the only thing that went through his head was, I could throw this away and get scrap metal price for it, or I could make a blacksmith really happy with it, and sell it to them for a reasonable price. So in total, I paid three hundred and twenty or forty bucks for it, and that twenty or forty bucks was just an extra for the anvil stand. So it's three hundred bucks for the anvil alone. Um, awesome. It was a really nice man. So that's what that's that would be euros, right? Yeah. You, you get yeah. All right, so that's like double. So that would be like six hundred Canadian dollars, or like five hundred US kind of idea. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, that's somewhere around. I paid five hundred bucks for my anvil, um, which is a nice Peter Wright. I got the guy that I got it from. Um, we went to it was sort of like this farm. Uh, what do you call it? like an industrial farm equipment company and the guy you know that was just where the guy worked and he brought the anvil there to sell it to me and um, they had this giant like farm equipment the wheel was like two Kenzie's tall it was pretty crazy um, so I got to see some of that stuff and he he talked about vices for a minute and he gave me a pretty good deal I think he wanted 675 for it and then I paid 500 just cuz I'm such a cute little kid <laughs> So there definitely are some advantages, but what I what I wanted to get at was you. Well, that's why I asked if you had a personal workspace because, you know, I was wondering if you end up, you know, you have to buy some of your own tools for, for your shop, when, when you want to work when you're not at work. Um, so what's what's the next tool on the list to add there? Um. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think better tongs. Just more variety of tongs. More top tooling, more hardy tooling. Oh, everyone knows I need more tongs. I only, I've only i been using one pair of tongs for three years. Yeah. And um, whenever I look on Instagram... at at other young makers stories whenever they're like holding something in tongs I notice it's the exact same pair I have because I just bought a pair of like wolf's jaw tongs off Amazon when I first started and it seems like everybody else had the same idea that's also the only tongue that I have in my uh, 
own little personal wolf uh, uh, <laughs> workplace. A uh, 50 centimeter long wolf jaw. They're pretty good tongs, though, I gotta wow. admit. Any young makers getting started, I would highly recommend the wolf straw tongs on Amazon. But then after that, go buy handmade tongs or make your own because, yeah. you know, other blacksmiths need uh, support. So I'm never gonna buy, you know, mass produced tongs again or hammers. But I think. I think it's something good to get you started, and then once you have the bare minimum, you should save up and help support these other people and practice what you preach. And I'm gonna try to do that. I desperately want an Ethan Hardy hammer mm. and a Conrad blacksmithing. He he was on here a while ago, and I want one of his cross peens real bad. So, yeah, I need tongs. Now that I have the, I've tried to make tongs a couple times and I fail horribly every time. So, Ooh. I might just buy them. I I know the feeling. <laughs> oh, I'm so terrible at tongs. Yeah. So, yeah, but buy tools, buy handmade tools, unless you're just starting, then buy them on Amazon. I don't mind. You have you have my permission <laughs> to buy whatever tools you want. <laughs> so, what are your plans for your business? Or I guess it well, I guess you're kind of working at another business right now, but when you're out of school, do you intend to keep working at your current place, or are you gonna kind of go to school for this, uh, like like the owners of this business did? I I keep trying to avoid saying the name because I know there's not a chance I can do it. <laughs> um, or do you intend to you know go to school and become a doctor or something <laughs> like that? You know. Uh, no, what I'm uh, really hoping on is. Uh, uh, finishing my education uh, like a good boy uh, just so I have a fallback you know like if blacksmithing doesn't work out I can at least become a welder um, but my big hope which is a big possibility is um, that after my uh, education I get hired by uh, one of the owners uh, to keep working there probably production style access um, but I also really hope that uh, Taru, the the big owner uh, who I work for, uh, it's a it's a weird system over there. Um, but the man that I work for will send me out to different uh, blacksmiths, so I can learn more of different techniques and really broaden my horizon in every which way and direction. Oh wow, that would be cool. That's super awesome. That that would be a great way to go. And that's something I've considered is after high school trying to uh reach out to some blacksmiths and some other makers around, you know, Canada and the states and try and do like a tour and you know, spend a week or a couple of days at a bunch of people's workshops and soak up some information for a summer or something. Is something that I sort of dreamed of, but I don't know if I'm famous enough to get to go to some of these workshops. I gotta, I gotta make more podcasts. I gotta <laughs> post on Instagram more, but you know. So that uh, sounds that sounds like a really cool way to go. I ask this question to everybody, and, and you know, lately I've started asking this question a lot, and it's because it's, I mean, one of the biggest decisions that a young maker has to make. 
but this is the most this is the coolest answer I've ever had. I mean, usually people say I'm going to go be a doctor or and do knives on the side, knives on the side, or they say like, "Oh yeah, I'm just going to go hard on it." But, you know, the idea of well, I mean, you already have a workplace, which is awesome. And so hoping to work there or to go and travel around and work with other people, that's just yeah, so I'm just jealous of that idea that you know that's that's something that might happen. That's super cool. Yeah. So, so enough enough rambling about that. that. There's a lot of rambling there, <laughs> with no point. So what do your parents think about about your work? Uh, well, my dad is very supportive. Uh, he gave me all of the space that I needed, uh, with limitations, of course. Um, I have the almost the entire shed. Uh, for myself of course we keep our bikes in there and my dad's tools and we use it as a general storage place um, but I am still allowed to blacksmith in my uh, backyard and that's already already very generous because we don't live out on an open field or something we just live in a regular neighborhood and uh, I think we count as the suburbs, but not fully. Hmm. Yeah, I live in a suburb too, so the blacksmithing. My neighbors were nice. We made, my, we just made cookies for them, <laughs> uh, for for all the neighbors right now because, they, you know, they put up with us for a while. So, that was pretty good. Yeah. Um. I uh, I got one complaint once, and I can't blame anyone for that complaint except myself um the complaint was if i could like keep it between the hours of three and six uh in the afternoon which i understand it's loud work and it's hard work and people are trying to rest and so we made a deal and i keep my uh i kept my work between three and six but now i'm in zwolle and we start at nine and end at like four or five or something yeah no that's better uh the only complaint i ever had was when the coal smoke was wafting into their yard while they were gardening mm. which is complete so i just switched to propane whenever they were in the backyard and it was good but what i did is i went around the neighborhood and i talked to people you know and i'd just be like hey i'm blacksmithing in my backyard uh all that smoke and noise is me like just you know, holler at me over the fence if it's bothering you and I'll stop. And nobody ever really had a problem. And so I think that for other young makers, if you're just getting started, definitely talk to your neighbors about it and be open about it because, you know, if they know about it, they're a lot less likely to be concerned versus, you know, if just a bunch of hammering starts coming from the backyard, they may think it's something funny. So, yeah. That, I think that's another hurdle that a that a lot of young makers in the city have to go through, is um, neighbors. So yeah. I was lucky to have awesome neighbors, though. Yeah, we also have uh, complaints from neighbors at Smederijswolle. Uh, we work on cokes, but we would much prefer working on uh, fat coal. Uh, but yeah, it just stinks a lot more. So. Then we get so the neighbors you... on our head, and then we're fucked. So, <laughs> so are you guys not on a like industrial lot? Um, 
kind of. Uh, oh, uh, we uh, there's a terrain with multiple companies. One is uh, uh, like totally biological food, all self-grown in their own uh, garden. And one of our neighbors is a car uh, rebuilding company or restoring company, and they work on uh, very old uh, beetles and everything, or uh, ducks. I don't know if that's the general name, uh, but the cars that look like beetles, and the people behind us are uh, a woodworking company, so it's, it's a terrain full of uh, companies. But right next to, uh, right outside of our gate, we do still have regular residents living there. And, uh, and those companies... They wouldn't be able to complain, though, if you live... Well, no, go ahead, you go ahead. Uh, the... Yeah, they just complain, uh, when we, uh... When our smoke smells too bad or something, and... They always are looking out for things that they can like screw us over with because they are just oh so mildly annoyed by us. And uh, yeah, they're annoying, but we can't really do much about it. See, that's weird. You'd think that if you live next door to an industrial lot, you wouldn't be able to complain about the, in the industry there. But... I guess that's too bad. Sounds like you guys aren't getting shut down anytime soon, though, so I suppose it's all right. Yeah, we're uh, we're doing pretty solid. Uh, main production is all run out of uh, one gas forge, uh, so they already barely uh, have uh, this stuff from the smoke, or. Yeah, I have complaints about the smoke uh, because it's all on gas. But when someone is working on Damascus, or if a bunch of people are working, we do light up one or two uh, coal forges. And if we're not uh, careful with the amount that we burn at once, they are gonna come over and complain. Huh? Because I was using a coal forge in my backyard and nobody... Well, I guess they complained a little, but they didn't really. Oh, well, that's too bad. That's too bad. At least you guys are able to work, though. Yeah, hopefully you'll have more propane in the future. Oh, we don't use propane. Or natural gas? Yeah. Oh, okay. So. so... I've looked into natural gas forges because my new shop is plumbed for it for the heater which isn't operational right now, sadly, but um, we looked at it and the pressure is so low that it's really difficult to make a forge on it. But I assume you guys have industrial, you know, a, high, a higher pressure natural gas. Uh, I'm not totally uh, aware of what, ev uh, what everything is that we have. Uh, all I know is that we have uh, a very specific kind of... Uh, subscription I guess to gas and electricity it's uh, it's basically all in so we ask one specific uh, so we pay one specific price and we can use as much gas and electricity as we want so we can also just pump uh, natural gas at enormous volumes 
Oh yeah, that makes sense. No, it sounds like you've got a really good thing going. It sounds like you're in a really a good place and a very unique and uh, fortunate situation. And I really look forward to seeing some more of your work. But we're actually... Ah, I usually don't end it so perfectly, but we're coming up exactly on one hour. And it has been a fantastic hour talking to you. And I think this has been a great episode. I hope that the listeners will agree. And uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, of course. It, uh, it was amazing to do. Oh, I guess I should open it up to you lastly. If you have any questions for me or any words of wise wisdom to spread on the viewers, I'll open it up to you to, s- to say your closing statement. Uh, I don't really have a question. All I have to say is uh, keep at it and always uh, try to reach out. It's, uh, it's the only advice I can give. Just reach out and practice. Don't be too hard on yourself. Awesome. What great advice. Usually people don't have any advice. I just ask the question to make people uncomfortable. <laughs> so, uh, nice job. You're, you responded to that well. So, I will let you guys go and get on listening with the rest of the shows on The Makery. Uh, you've been listening to the Young Makers podcast on The Makery Network. We come to you not live every Tuesday. And, yeah. Thanks for listening. And until next time. Keep making, keep listening. Night. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network. Uh-huh.